Welcome to the sermon podcast of Christ Community Church in Springfield, Missouri. Christ Community features life-giving, verse-by-verse teaching from the Bible. If you would like more information about CCC, you can visit our website at cccspringfield.org. We trust these messages will challenge and encourage you in being a faithful follower of Christ. Let's all stand as we look at Romans chapter 2. Now, this is actually a part of a section through verse 16 uh, that we will deal with, but uh, this is the first section, and this is what we'll uh, cover today. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impotent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. You may be seated. So let me just start by asking you a couple questions. Is it okay to support a guy like Donald Trump? Let's just spend the next hour and talk about that today, okay? Um, Should I, having a child who I have communicated clearly the word of God, go to their gay wedding. Should I wear a mask? Sorry to bring those memories up. But it applies. There are a myriad of other things in which we might disagree with people. And I'm not going to get into the specifics of those things that I've mentioned. You don't think I'm that stupid, do you? All right. But these are opportunities in which we can either disagree, and by the way, judgment is not disagreeing with one another. I may disagree with you on something, that doesn't mean I'm judging you necessarily. It's not disagreeing. And judgment is not calling something sin that the Bible clearly says is sin. That's not judging someone. But in those instances I mentioned, have you ever seen judgment? I really care not what your position is on those things that I mentioned, but I do care about whether we're judging one another. What is it? I think we'll get some light to some of that today in Romans chapter 2. You know, the Pledge of Allegiance to the United States has a line about justice for all. And here in our passage, Paul is actually talking about judgment for all, particularly those who have rejected the gospel. 
The Apostle Paul targets Gentiles in chapter 1 of Romans and Jews in chapter 2. We find the third person pronoun of they used throughout the first chapter. Uh, For instance, we see that they are without excuse, verse 20. Even though they knew God, they did not honor him, verse 21. They became futile, verse uh, 21. They became fools, verse 22. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, verse 25. And three times, God gave them over. In chapter 2, he switches to the second person, you, and in verse 17 of chapter 2, he identifies them as Jews. So, the non-religious Gentile person in chapter 1, and the Jews, or we might call the religionist, the moralist in chapter 2. And they saw themselves, the Jews, they saw themselves as more religious than Gentiles. And they believed that that made them superior. Now the Jews obviously were given a stewardship by God to be his people on the earth and to be an ambassador for God on the earth. We read in Isaiah, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Now, over time, the Jews twisted this calling for themselves and as a way to look out and help people and used it more as self-protection, self-focus, prideful in their position as God's people. So when I say they or the Jews, henceforth in this message, I don't mean every single Jew because we know there was a remnant who were faithful and had the right heart. But I think we could refer to most of the teachers and most of the people, even though obviously that's not talking about every single one. They thought that as God's chosen people, they would not have to face God's judgment. The apocryphal wisdom of Solomon, not not in our Bible, written in the first century, bears this thought out and has many other statements, but listen to this. So while chastening as thou scourgest our enemies 10,000 times more, (laughs) the other guy deserves judgment 10,000 times more than I do. Now listen, it's not that the religious crowd was wrong in seeing the sin in the Gentiles. It's that they did not realize their own sin. And it's the same today. When religious people rail about certain things in our society, they fail to see their own issues. Verse 1, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same thing. So when we judge, 
we lack the humility in seeing the sin in ourselves. That's what Paul said in, in Galatians 6, as you, when you confront another person, do so, do so humbly and be, be conscious of your own state. And the Jews are without excuse. Because you know why? They have, they have demonstrated they are experts in detecting sin in others. So now they need to apply that expert ability on themselves. Jesus addressed the teachers of the law and their attitude of contempt toward others. And he said, he also told his parables to some who trusted in themselves uh, that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner." I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So the self-righteous make two grave errors. They underestimate God's standard of righteousness for themselves, and they underestimate the depth of their own sin. It is common to exaggerate the faults of others while minimizing our own sin. And Jesus addressed that too. Remember when he talked about you know, the speck in somebody else's eye and the, and the beam in your own in Matthew 7? It's kind of like a person who condemns another for having $400,000 in debt, criticizing. And they might have $200,000 in debt, and they see themselves as debt-free, no issue. Both are in debt. In calling out one person, he's condemning himself. Perhaps the moral man condemns adultery. But did he lust? Jesus equated lust with adultery in Matthew 5. Maybe the religious man doesn't steal. But does he covet? The moral man may not commit murder, but does he hate? The Bible says if you hate your brother, you're guilty of murder. See, there's maybe not this big chasm between the sinner and the religious person. Here's the thesis I'm running on. All of us have judged. And all of us have been judged. Right? Right? This is something, it's like a person saying, you know what, I'm over pride. I'm like, dude, you have no idea, okay? We all do this. When we judge, here's some other things to think about, what judging is, all right? So it's, it's not taking your own sin into account, that's one thing. And the other is, we assume we know what is in the heart of another person. And we assume we know how things are going to turn out. In other words, we make a, also a, a conclusion that we know all the facts when we don't. 
So we actually are claiming to do the things that only God can do. Look inside the heart, know all the facts, predict the future. That's a part of judging as well. Verse 2, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Well, what things are these moralist or religious people practicing that deserve God's judgment? Well, they're judging others with close scrutiny and refuse to apply the same standard to themselves. An example of this psychology is David, who looked from his balcony at Bathsheba, lusted, committed adultery. She was a married woman. And then came up with a plot to see her husband die in war. It was premeditated murder. Nathan, the prophet, told David the tale of a rich man who took a poor man's sheep, which the poor man loved, and then the rich man slaughtered it to feed his guests. And David was horrified at this. And we read in 2 Samuel, As the Lord lives, the man who's done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing. And because he had no pity, Nathan said to David, you are the man. He didn't mean it like we say, hey, you the man. No. He meant, that's you. That's you. David failed to see his own sin. But when he got confronted, thankfully he did. And that doesn't always do it for some people. They can be confronted with their stuff, and they're still in great denial. The Greek word for right in verse 2, it's used 109 times in the New Testament. 96 of those times, it's translated as truth. The idea is that God's judgment is, is accurate. It's objective. It's It's unprejudiced. It's based on the actual evidence. You know, no one can claim a mistrial from God's judgment. The truth is, the sin of the moralist, the legalist, the person steeped in religion has sinned just like the Gentile. You know, we've heard it said that it's not judging if what I'm saying is true. You ever heard that? Well, obviously, you know, They've sinned, so that's not judging. Let us understand something here. Paul was not arguing whether the Gentiles sinned. The Jews knew it. Paul knew it. The issue was not whether they have sinned. And he gave a whole list of it in chapter 1. In other words, judging was taking place even though there was sin there that was clear and evident But agreeing that they've sinned, that was not the judgment. Judgment was something else. The Jews lacked humility, and that was a judgment. They assumed they knew what was in the heart of the person. That was a judgment. See, judgment is the heart of the critic. Their heart is in the wrong place. It's not a debate of whether... Sin has occurred or not. That's not the issue. And so you could could look at a person who plainly has sinned, and one person can come along and, and minister, talk the truth. 
guide, help, and another who agrees with the sin can judge. That's what the Jews were doing. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Does the moralist really think that they're going to get away with not having to face God for sin? And the answer is, of course not, right? If the religious person is just as guilty as the obvious sinner, then judgment is certain. I mean, what is it that causes religious people to be so blind and self-righteous and arrogant? What is that? Could it be that we dismiss the idea that we'll have to face judgment? Now, there is a judgment for Christians, okay, in the judgment seat of Christ that we'll have to answer for our works, not for the purpose of entering heaven, but to evaluate our works. I don't even think that's what Paul is talking about here. I think he's talking about the the, the judgment, the great wrath of God for rejecting the gospel, rejecting God. That's the great white throne judgment. You have to face the penalty of your sin with eternal separation from God. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found on them. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Being written in the book was determined by how one genuinely placed their faith in the gospel of Christ. Gentiles and Jews are being addressed in this passage. So we could say that this today. Evangelicals and those who are not going to church at all, irreligious people, can face judgment if in their heart they've rejected God. See, there are a lot of people who go to church who've never really humbly come to Christ. Call themselves evangelicals. They're, they're cultural evangelicals, but not one by heart. For the person who's rejected Christ, but think of themselves as moral, you know what they're going to find out? that hell is filled with a lot of moral, judgmental people. And for the Christian who is made judging his favorite indoor sport, they're going to have to face God on that matter as well. Again, not for the sake of entering heaven, but to evaluate those works. The psalmist said, God will judge the world in righteousness and the people in his faithfulness. You know, there's naive assumptions with all of society that God, you know, doesn't condemn anybody, doesn't judge anybody, a loving God is going to accept everyone, that hell doesn't exist. It, it's so common today that Paul's approach on this about divine judgment is just largely rejected. And those who reject the topic rarely consider the alternatives that if God does not judge a man ultimately, that man will then greatly diminish the value of his actions. And that's what's reflected in modern thinking. If there's no eternal value to what I do, then 
whatever will be, will be. I just get to do whatever I want. Paul addresses his own ability to look critically at himself. This is an interesting aspect here. He said in Corinthians, but with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any other court, uh, human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not therefore uh, thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Paul is addressing an overabundance of self-confidence. And we're all distorted by this because we live with our flesh as we evaluate ourselves. And we, we think we know all the facts, but we don't know all the facts, literally. We don't even know, according to this, our own heart as well, as, certainly as well as God does, because we're biased for ourselves. And I, I, I've told you this before. My biggest problem in ministry is me. Not you or the problems we face. It's me. It's me struggling with my own pride, my own flesh, and having to do battle with that. And you know what? That's yours. Now, this doesn't mean you shouldn't be vulnerable or you shouldn't take an honest look at yourself. That, that's not what he's saying. We just have to realize that you know, we, we can do the best we can, but our self-evaluation is not going to be the best or final word. God is the final arbiter. God cautioned Samuel, uh, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, for God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at his heart. There have been times I've said to Janet, she'll go, well, you know, why did you do that? And I'm like, uh, I don't really know. And sometimes we just have to be honest. I don't even understand myself sometimes. Now, you could say, well, maybe that was you not looking deep enough. Could be. <laughs> but I'm just saying, don't always know why I do some of the things I do. I do have a list on the table for some of those things. If you want to look after the service, you can have a list for that. Verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Many people look at the delay of God's judgment and surmise that judgment is not coming at all. Paul, however, insists that the true reason for God's delay is his forbearance, goodness, and long-suffering, so that this would lead people to repentance. Commenting on the release of the New English Bible some years ago, Lord Platt, who was the president of the Royal College of Physicians at the time, wrote this. He said, perhaps now that it is written in a language all can understand, the Old Testament will be seen for what it is, an obscene chronicle of man's cruelty to man, or worse, perhaps his cruelty to women and of man's selfishness and cupidity. Backed up by his appeal to his God, a horror story if there ever was one. It is to be hoped that it will at last be proscribed as totally inappropriate to the ethical instruction of school children. End quote. That is the MO of the thinking today of modern man to dismiss God's judgment, to invent a God who is permissive of everything. Kindness is also translated goodness. 
The idea is that God is kind and good to us in spite of our past sin. God is kind and patient in his kindness so that men will have time to repent, to change. Spurgeon said, It seems to me that every morning when a man wakes up still impenitent and finds himself out of hell, the sunlight seems to say, I shine on thee yet another day, as that is this day that thou mayest repent. I'm alive today because God is giving me an opportunity to get it right, to get my heart in the right position. And the idea is that God is far better to all of us than what we deserve. The fact is that all of us deserve judgment. You've heard me say this before. If God was fair, we'd all be dead. Yet we still live. And so we are recipients of his goodness. The psalmist wrote, The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. When the religious people forget and ignore the consequences of their judgmentalism, they actually show contempt for God's goodness and mercy. Now listen, if kindness is God's goodness to us in spite of our past sin, forbearance is God's goodness to us in light of our present sin. We have fallen short and he holds back his judgment against us. Listen, if God pinpointed every sin in our life with exacting degree along with corresponding consequences in the moment, none of us would survive. Now, there is value in confronting sin and holding other people accountable. But how does that mesh with 1 Peter 4.8 that says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins? I think moralists and legalists would hate this verse. They would dismiss it because it takes the air out of your judgmental balloon. Love is quick to forgive, not condemn or criticize. It's quick to give a person the the benefit of the doubt. Mother Teresa said, when you judge people, you don't have the time to love them. One thing I notice when I judge others is that it is far more difficult to change my mind when presented with contrary facts. Love wants to believe the best. Judging wants to believe the worst. Forbearing will not shut people out, but keep our hearts open because love covers a multitude of sins. Now listen, I'm not talking here about those physically or sexually abused where boundaries are good and necessary. I'm I'm talking about the garden variety of everyday slights and offenses. Patience is translated long-suffering and may be considered God's kindness to us in regard to our future sin. 
He knows that we will sin tomorrow and the next day. And many of you will sin here in about six hours if the Chiefs lose today. Yet he holds back his judgment against us. Strangely, most people do not perceive of a God as being patient and good. They accuse him of being insensitive, unloving for letting certain things happen. You know, how could a, how could a little child die? How could God allow that? Why does God allow that a good person suffer, suffer pain and, and poor health? But the people who judge like this, they judge God from an incomplete and distorted human perspective. Failing to acknowledge that if it were not for God's gracious goodness and patience, no human would be alive today. It is only by his grace that allows any person to take a breath. We read in Job, in his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Understand this from the original creation story. God declared to Adam, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That is the sentence. From the beginning, sin has the sentence as a capital offense. Now, if you and I were to add up our sin, you know, every time you're angry at something, flying off the handle, greedy, Lustful sins. What, how many do you have a day? Seriously. Let's just be, you know, really generous and say only 10. Add that up for every day out of the year. You live 70 years and you got hundreds of thousands of offenses against the court. What's the judge going to say to that? But see, God is perfect, and you have to be perfect in order to attain God's righteousness, Matthew 5, 48. So one sin deserves judgment. From the beginning, all sin has a capital offense. And so every one of us are living in light of a suspended sentence. It's probably a fair question to ask, why doesn't he strike down many other people for their sins? including Christians, like he did Ananias and Sapphira? Or how about the rebellion of Korah and his followers? The reason is, Romans 9 says, that God endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. All of his kindness and forbearance and patience was to bring repentance. And never occurs to the moralist that he personally needs the goodness of God. He's unaware of his need for repentance. But it doesn't change the reality of it. Verse 5. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. 
Instead of warm and humble responses to the goodness of God, he's exhibited hardness in a heart that refuses to repent or an impenitent heart. So what happens? More sin flourishes. Instead of grace being an experience of loving gratitude and and warm submission to God, he spends it on more sin, which in turn treasures up more condemnation and guilt. So the moralist thinks he's got all these treasures of merit when actually he's just piling up the sin. The word for hard uh, here in this verse is from our medical, uh, where we get our medical term sclerosis. Arterial sclerosis refers to the hardening of the arteries. That's quite a picture of the spiritual condition of hearts who've become unresponsive and insensitive to God. And so the spiritual condition is immeasurably worse than the physical. Hardening of the arteries may send a person to the grave, but hardening of the spiritual heart and rejecting God and the gospel will take him to hell. Religion is supposed to draw you to God. But here it has the opposite impact. And woe unto us if we think evangelicalism doesn't do that. And that we're immune from that. Right? It's in our own camp. So let's not just point the finger at some of those other guys. In Luke 13, Jesus referred to two issues or events. Uh, one happened near Jerusalem where there was a pool and there was a tower next to the pool. We don't know how it happened, but the tower fell and 18 people died. And people wanted to know, why were these people killed? And specifically, what did they do wrong to deserve such a fate? The Jews were also upset that the government took money from the temple treasury. So the money that's supposed to be used for sacrifices was taken by Rome. And the Romans raided the temple, and this incensed the Jews. And in some of their rioting over this, some were killed. So Jesus says this. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the Galileans because they suffered in this way? No. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Of those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Look, I I think it's so easy for us. We look around us. And we see things that make us incensed about where our country's going. And we see factions that walk away from God. And you get, you get so upset, we point the finger. And yes, sin is sin. Not arguing that. But the things it creates in our hearts, or it can. And instead of having mercy and love for these people, we make an enemy of them. That is judging We do it in personal relationships, and we do it in mass to people as well. I'm not disagreeing about the state of things. I'm advocating to have our heart in the right place. 
The idea that others deserve judgment and we don't is a mistaken notion. Well, I'll tell you what, if you want to stop a conversation at the water cooler at work, just ask this question. So how do you think you're going to do at God's judgment? (laughs) That will stop any conversation. I'm not suggesting you ask that question in the middle of talking about the Super Bowl. But it's certainly a question most don't want to consider. But listen, it doesn't change the reality of it, right? For those who have rejected God, they've rejected the warnings of Scripture. They reject God's involvement in the world. They reject the gospel. There will be a day of wrath and final judgment. Wrath is characterized as righteous judgment. In other words, it will be true. It will be just compared to the holiness of God. In other words, the holiness of God is the standard. So Paul is emphasizing the the thoughtless folly of the religious moralizer. And everywhere around him, he should see the manifested wrath of God. Instead of trying to avoid that wrath, he is heaping it up on himself. Now listen, if you're hearing this message on a podcast or you're in the audience today and you're hearing this, and you have not put your trust in Christ, you've not embraced the gospel, I want you to understand Paul's words. I know it may sound hard, and to some it may even sound unforgiving, but I think if you think that, you completely miss the point because it's quite the opposite. If you are alive today, right now, and you have rejected God, that's God's grace, that you are alive. And you are to take advantage of that right now as an opportunity to come to Christ for forgiveness. If you are a Christian, and you know that there's a judgment seat of Christ, yes, there's heaven, but God will look at our works, and it ought to stop us in our boots for holding judgment unforgiveness, bitterness, rejecting the people of God, whatever it is. That too is to be considered. Let's go before the Lord. Thank you for listening to the Christ Community Church Podcast. We hope today's message gives you encouragement and hope. If you would like more information about the church, you can go to cccspringfield.org.